Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. Exciting day today. Today marks the 80th anniversary of the huge aerial assault that Adolf Hitler's Luftwaffe launched on London. Today marks the 80th anniversary of what has become known as Battle of Britain Day. It marks the last great daylight raid on London, the climax of the Battle of Britain as Hitler's Luftwaffe attempted to deal a knockout blow to the RAF, which they believe was on its last legs, and begin aerial bombardment of London, which would force the British government either to the peace table or prepare, possibly, the way for a a German invasion of the UK. British fighter squadrons took to the skies and inflicted terrible losses on the Germans, convincing them that the Battle of Britain could not be won. It was a decisive victory, Hitler's first defeat in the Second World War. To mark this anniversary, we've got a season of programmes going out on History Hit TV. Uh, We've got podcasts, we've got Victoria Taylor coming up this week talking about the German point of view during the Battle of Britain. But today we've got an interview I conducted with historian Stephen Bungay at Bentley Priory, which used to be headquarters of Fighter Command. Sir Hugh Dowding's headquarters from which he planned and then ran the Battle of Britain. You're going to hear today Stephen Bungay explaining why the RAF won and why it wasn't even very close. Thanks to the extraordinary marriage of technology, operational and tactical innovations made by Sir Hugh Dowding and others. It turns out the RAF was brilliantly prepared to meet an aerial challenge in the skies above the UK. You can watch a version of this documentary on History Hit TV. You can watch a whole series of other programmes we've made to mark this important anniversary. We've got a season out at the moment. If you go to History Hit TV, yeah, I hate doing this, but we've got a special offer at the moment because it is the Battle of Britain. If you go to History Hit TV... And if you use the code Battle of Britain, all one word, Battle of Britain, you get a month for free and then you get the next three months for just one pound, dollar, euro for each of those three months. Takes you up and beyond Christmas. Insanity. You'll still be riding the Battle of Britain train in January. So head over to History Hit TV, use the code Battle of Britain. But in the meantime, enjoy this podcast with the very brilliant Stephen Bungay. This is Headquarters Fighter Command, and one of the key things that happened here was processing information that came in from radar. But the way it worked is absolutely brilliant, conceptually far ahead of the time. This system is in fact the ancestor of the internet we know today. This is um, Dowding's headquarters, his office, his telephones, chair he sat in. Not the original, I suspect, but um, this is where... Uh, the man who masterminded all of this uh, spent his time. And so he didn't, what's exciting about this space is he, he built and designed this system and then he operated it all from here, from this desk. Yeah, well, he made big calls, I suppose. Um, he kept himself out of day-to-day operations. He made sure that they were working properly. His main job in the summer of 1940 was making sure that Fighter Command was properly resourced, you know, getting pilots from elsewhere for, from training command, beating up the the training units to provide them, making sure that aircraft production supply were working, but they weren't really a problem. And then working on new problems. So he was, as it were, thinking about the next battle while other people were fighting this one. And he spent an inordinate amount of time on night air defence and working out how to do that. Because at the time, in the summer of 1940, we were helpless at night. We had absolutely nothing. You're kidding me. So Hugh Dowding was busy thinking about the blitz that was to come. Yeah, the one that was to come. No. Uh, He actually wrote a letter that he had distributed across Fighter Command to uh, his fighter boys, as he called them, saying, you know, you're not going to be seeing very much of me over the coming months, but my thoughts will always be with you. 
and I'm working on some other things to help you. So, you know, over to Keith Park, as it were. To his subordinates. To his subordinates. Okay, well, let's, let's take it right back. He's sitting here in the late 1930s. He's scribbling out, he's typing out. What are the decisions he makes and how do those win the Battle of Britain? Okay, well, his main decisions at that time are really about putting the whole system together. Um, he, he's got scientific committees working. He's got to sort out um, things to do with aircraft armament. He started his time in research and development. So an awful lot of it was about managing technical experts and putting it all together in such a way that the whole thing worked. He had to work with civilian organisations, um, such as the post office, which at the time was contained what we now know as BT as well. Thousands and thousands of miles of telephone cable were laid. Power had to be got to uh, the operations rooms right across the country. And you had to make sure the national grid didn't uh, fall apart. It was a bloody good job we had a national grid, actually, because a lot of countries didn't. They had regional grids. Without the national grid, well, very difficult to say whether the whole thing could have worked or not. He was commissioning people to build underground bunkers. He got this place armoured and he put the filter room down there. Thousands and thousands of things he had to deal with. He Talk, had to deal talking with Talking to the supermarine company that made Spitfires. Yeah, no, yeah. he was involved in all that, in the specification that led to the Spitfire and the Hurricane, well, how many guns they were going to have, you know, the, the eight-gun decision. He was a part of that. That was his department that did all the work that proved that they would actually need eight machine guns if that was what it was going to be. And yet, at the same time, he has this vision of how this thing can all work. So at the same time, it's very unusual to find this in one person, he's very detail-orientated and very practical and very visionary and very conceptual. You, you, usually you find people are one or the other and he was both. That was the characteristic of his genius. And then of course when the threat comes he has to work out how to deal with it. So he's got all these resources, how's he going to deploy them? And that comes down to strategy. Now, what you do as a defender is going to depend on what the other guy's going to do. So what are the Germans trying to do? Well, the problem they have is that they never really made up their minds. So are we going to cut England off and lay siege? Are we going to seek a political decision? Or are we going to prepare for an invasion? They never really decided. Um, and that has direct operational consequences. So, for example, Luftwaffe go off and they bomb Southampton because it's a port. And the army come along and say, Oi, what are you doing bombing Southampton? We're going to need every tonne of British port capacity we have once we land or we'll lose the build-up battle. So, oh, terribly sorry. Oh, you, you are going to invade, are you? Yeah, well, uh, maybe. Um, okay, yeah. So do we or do we not? Let's wait on the whole bloody time. Fighter command strategy was very, very clear. You could formulate it by saying that Dowding and Park together said we're going to defeat every serious raid in order to deny the enemy air superiority. We're not that worried about how many, we, we're just going to inflict a price on every incursion into British airspace with bombers that, do, that can do damage. Send over fighters, that's fine. They can burn up petrol at 30,000 feet over Kent if they like and then go home, we'll leave them. They want us to come up and fight big air battles with their 109s. We're not going to play their game, they're going to force them to play our game. You send a bomber over and there's Spitfires and Hurricanes all over it, but you leave the fighters alone. And they keep going. The idea is you, you, you retain the ability to keep going, whatever they do, indefinitely. So you conserve your own strength. And eventually the other lot are going to realise they're getting nowhere and give up. There was an alternative idea, which was to try to engage in large air battles in order to inflict large casualties. 
Well, that's actually what the Luftwaffe wanted us to do. <laughs> and big air battles don't actually cause high percentage casualties. They're just very confusing. There's no such thing as decision in an air battle. It's always attrition. So that, the clarity of that message filtered on down right into the way they ran operations. But he was very controversial, and there was opposition within the Air Force himself. There was opposition within Fighter Command that came from Sholto Douglas, who was uh, Deputy Chief of the Air Staff in the Air Ministry, and of course from Lee Mallory in 12th Group, who thought that he was mishandling the battle. It ought to be fought in a very different way, amassing large numbers of fighters and indulging in large air battles. That was their counter-strategy. And there was a lot of scheming that went on. It was very political. He was not liked by some very senior officers of the RAF. The man who, who portrays him, I think, in the most um, insightful way was Frederick Pyle, who was actually an army man who was in head of AA command, and he worked together with Dowding. Of course, the anti-aircraft defences had to be coordinated with all of this. And he referred to um, Dowding as the most outstanding airman he met in the war, but he said he was an odd fish, <laughs> a difficult man, a stubborn man, um, and his nickname, of course, was Stuffy because he was extremely formal and very, um, very reluctant to praise, shall we say, a certain type, rather austere, but actually very humane. I mean, he had a run-in with Trenchard during the First World War over Trenchard's ruthless use of pilots in the RFC, and you know, they wanted to ban parachutes and so on, and Dowding opposed this. So Trenchard didn't like him. And that eventually um, led to his dismissal and his removal from fighter command. But that's, that's another story. Now, at the time, I think one would have to say he had all the political backing he needed, uh, particularly from Churchill, and all the resources he needed. Because you think about it, the country was spending unprecedented amounts of money on the Air Force on things like radar, and nobody knew if they were going to work. <laughs> I'd done this before. You know, it's taking huge risks, you know, similar in order of magnitude, I guess, to the building of the dreadnoughts before the First World War, which was a big risk. At least you knew the thing was going to work, but nobody knew whether the system was actually going to work or not. It was all put together. So unlike other great commands in British history, Nelson. Yeah. Nelson fights sea battles in his prime on ships that hadn't changed that much since he was yeah. a boy sailor. Yeah. Dowding, sitting in that chair, is, is presumably so he's trying to work out how you bring in technology that is just, I mean, cutting edge hardly even covers it. This is and stuff that's never no, been No, used. absolutely. No, no, nobody's done this before. So military technology starts to change during the 19th century. I mean, if you look at an infantryman who fought with Marlborough at Blenheim, shifting forward 100 years on the Battle of Waterloo, he could pick up everything within five minutes. Not a lot's changed. Fifth, shifting forward another 100 years to 1915, and got a clue what's going on can't fire the weapons, and everything he's been taught to do about standing upright in the brand new uniform is going to kill him within two seconds on the front. Right? So everything's changed. Now we're going a step further in the 20th century where we're dealing with this thing, the aeroplane, that has doubled in speed, range, size every 10 years or so since it was invented. And it's continuing, and it's speeding up. That rate of change is speeding up. You've got this new technology, radar, that the Germans knew all about, by the way, but they developed it in the German Navy to deal with shipping. And we're using what actually to them was a rather crude version of it. But well, all sorts of problems come up. So after the war started, they find they're, getting, they're picking up signals from behind the stations and they're rather, getting rather confused about what's coming in and coming out. Identification friend and foe is still a problem. They got a basic solution, but there's a big cock up just a few days into the war. There's a battle of Barking Creek when Spitfires attack hurricanes because of the teething troubles. So you imagine you've got this brand new IT system that is leaping a few 
generations um, and you've got to work it up and you've got to have people who understand how to make it work as well. So you've got a lot of training to do. So there's this sort of race to get it ready in time and it meets its most severe test, um, luckily, um, just short of nine months into the war when they had a chance to try it out. There's never been an no, air battle been before, been. has no. it? There, there, this is the first pure air battle there's, there's ever been. In the First World War, of course, there was a lot of air activity. Uh, the main thing, though, was to clear the airspace behind the enemy lines so that your own reconnaissance aircraft could do spotting for the artillery. It was subservient to the army. The RFC was part of the army. It only became an independent force in 1918. Likewise, the Navy used aircraft for its own purposes, largely reconnaissance. You need control of the air for that reason. This is something quite different, right? This is you know, that the whole question of whether we stay in the war or not being resolved solely in the air. And the threat of bombing was also an unknown. I mean, in the 1930s, people's attitude to being bombed from the air conventionally is rather similar to our view of nuclear war. I mean, H.G. Wells writes these science fiction novels where it's just devastation. Uh, the civilian authorities expected London to have a few hundred thousand casualties in the first weeks of the war. They expected everybody to panic. They thought it quite likely the Germans had dropped gas on them. Uh, all sorts of things that didn't happen. Nobody knew London could take it, as they said, until London actually did take it and people didn't panic and they did go into their shelters and they followed the air raid warnings. And in fact, every city on earth took it, as it were. Um, a lot of them, like Tokyo and Berlin on the far bigger scale than London ever did. But just threatening the bomb was seen as, unless you could stop them, was seen as terrifying. And Baldwin's famous phrase from 1934, I'm sorry to tell you, the bomber will always get through. So the only answer is for us to kill more of their women and children than they kill of ours, was terrifying. And nobody had challenged it, except the guy who sat there, who listened to said this, and they said no. The way to stop it is the fear of the fighter. So Dowding believed you could stop the bomber? Dowding flew in the face of conventional wisdom. Indeed, within the Air Force itself, which is why the Air Force was building up its so-called strategic bombing fleet from Bomber Command that was going to, so if they do it to us, we'll do it to them only more. Right? So the death toll is going to rise and rise. And Dowding says, no. If we have fighters that are good enough and are able to control them properly, if you give me 52 squadrons of them and keep them at strength, I can defend this country against all comers indefinitely. And in the end, if they've got an ounce of sense, they'll stop because they'll realize they're just getting nowhere. And that's exactly what happened. So what exactly was it that this genius had been squirreling up in this office? What was that system that allowed the RAF to win? Most interesting bit of all, Dan, and to show you that, we need to go next door. Okay. So this is a sort of reconstruction, is it? Yes, that's right. So this is um, showing the sort of thing that used to go on downstairs in, in the filter room. So okay. know what that is. You've got to get an idea of what this system was designed to do. Uh, the military would call it a C3 system, command, control and communications. But you can think of it as basically an information processing and communications system. So you start off with information from two sources. One is radar, looking out to sea but it's blind when an aircraft crosses land. So it's backed up, this most advanced of technologies, by the oldest of technology, what Churchill called 30,000 pairs of the Mark I eyeball. 
There they are, the Observer Corps. Um, there were posts all over the country. Um, some of the most dangerous raids that came in at low level underneath the radar were in fact tracked by the Observer Corps. All that is fed in here. So Headquarters Fighter Command is the information processor and the key thing is the filter room. So it's working out what all these blips on the radar mean, how many raids there are because you're getting the different radar stations uh, getting the same raid, what height they're flying at, that was one of the hardest things to estimate, and their strength and their trajectory, where they were going to. And they're all laid out on the plotting table here. So the plotting table is, we now are so familiar with the air traffic control, yeah. with the screen, and yeah. this, is just a, this is the first great that's, airspace management system. Yeah, that's system. basically what it is. Uh, here you can, you can see it here, people lying over it, and oh, on here you can see the, the blocks that would have been pushed around. And so what people saw here is then reproduced exactly, the whole thing standardized, group. So we're here at the top of, of the operations room, a filter room in, in, in headquarters here, with all the information coming in. It's worked out which raid is which. It passes that information down to the group. So that's 11 group covering the southeast, 10 group southwest, 12 group the Midlands, and 13 group Scotland. They are the people who then make the decision about what to do about the raids. They control the aircraft. And so someone will say in 11 group, okay, call Biggin Hill, scramble 72 and 92 squadrons, patrol Maidstone and Angels 25. But the group won't send those signals out because it's got too many aircraft to be able to deal with. The next level down is the sector. And the sector is an individual airfield, Tangmere, Biggin Hill, Kenley, Hornchurch, Northfield in 11 group, who would also have a few satellites where some squadrons will be stationed. They usually controlled about three squadrons each, and they would actually ring the bell, call out squadron scramble, and then talk to the pilots as they took off that information would be fed back up into groups so the group knew where its forces were from released to engaged and all the stages in between and fighter command here just kept on updating the information that came in through someone called a teller they would update the information every two minutes and so all these little markers would be moved so you're you're dealing in, in three dimensions here you visualize three dimensions uh, and time, right? So you've got height, direction, and time. And it's all done using color. It's all very clear. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do in it. And nobody else in the world had anything like this. And it's so interesting hearing you talk about it because for much of military history, you think about Napoleon in Russia, the problem is complete lack of information. You've got no mm. idea what your enemy's doing. Mm. We're now entering that very modern world that we all know very well today. We've yes. got far too much information yes. coming out. Yes. There was some uncertainty around the information. The, the most dodgy bit of information was height. Hard to estimate, and pilots knew that, so they always used to, if they are ordered to patrol at you know, 15,000 feet, they'd make it 18, just to be sure, because it wouldn't be on top. And uh, there were missed interceptions because of that, because they're going up too high. But generally, it gave them a vivid, real-time view of the battlefield, which is something a commander had never had before, and able to act on it very accurately. I mean, if you wanted to understand how it works in, in terms we're all familiar with. This little thing, right, you, this is radar. There you are out carrying radar in your pocket in a German bomber. That tells Google, which is headquarters fighter command, where you are and what you're up to. Google passes that information on to Google Ads, which is group, and they then, when you get a ping, it means that an advertiser has intercepted you and you've been told there's 25% off today. 
It's exactly the same principle. This was revolutionary in our time. This is part of our daily lives. The main difference is that this uses digital technology that uses analog technology, but the basic design principles are the same. And so you mentioned analog technology. All, I'm so struck by all of these being connected by phone lines. And you've pointed out in, in your books that it was almost impossible to destroy this network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you think of a traditional command and control system as used in the First World War, you have a telephone line from the brigadier down to the battalion headquarters in the front line. The next minute a shell lands and cuts the line, dead, they're cut off. Command and control is no longer possible. However, if you cut a bit of a, a net, the information flows around the hole. So even if you manage to take out one of the operations rooms at the sector level, then the information flowed down around it. So one stage, uh, Biggin Hill went down for an afternoon. So Kenley and Hornchurch took over control of the squadrons. The Germans noticed nothing. And at the same time, it's self-repairing. So once a raid's gone, WAFs come out with red flags to mark unexploded bombs. Chaps with shovels have some gravel to fill in the bomb craters. They'd already thought that that might happen, so they stockpiled the stuff. And the GPO come in, GPO engineers, as they then were, and twist all the telephone lines together. The biggest vulnerability was power. And both Biggin and Kenley went down because power lines were hit. They did, of course, have emergency generation. But what they did in both those cases was to evacuate the operations room, which is doing all this stuff, to the neighbouring village, one to Biggin Hill, uh, and the other, Kenley, evacuated to an old butcher shop in Caterham Village. Yeah. Um, I've spoken to the guy who, who used to patrol the, um, the telephone lines running down from there to Kenley. And he said he used to patrol it with a shotgun. Um, I said, John, what are you going to do with a shotgun against German paratroopers? He said, oh, so I won't worry about paratroopers. He said, it's the bloody squirrels. They gnaw through them. Imagine these SS squirrels. Um, you know, gnawing through, paralysing our system. The secret enemy. They probably would achieve more than the German Luftwaffe. They would have done, yeah. Uh, and what's striking is that you talk about setting up, you just need a phone. So just like we go, I'll set up a, I'll set up a, I'll set up a workstation off-site. You just need no, a phone. No, I mean, yeah, okay, so they, they evacuated Kenley Ops to Caterham Village, down, down the hill. They could have evacuated it to India, in principle. It's your back office operation. We're doing exactly the same thing. As long as they can talk to each other and they share information, Bob's your uncle. Um, and they had a third line beyond that. Now, if I'd wanted to win the battle, if I'd been in charge of the Luftwaffe, I, I wouldn't have even bothered attacking the airfields or the radar stations. I'd have, to start off with, I'd have attacked the national grid. I, I'd have hit every power station in southeast England. Because in order to defeat the system, you've got to make it blind and dumb before you do anything else. And if you've made it blind and dumb, then you can start to paralyse it, because then I could do surprise attacks and catch aircraft on the ground. Uh, but too many radar stations take out, very difficult targets. They banished a few, then they gave up. They naively thought, oh, it doesn't matter if they know when we're coming because we want to engage them in the air anyway. That's how clever the leadership on the other side was. So I think, yes, you, you could have taken out this system, but it would have been an act of imagination that would have been impossible for someone at that stage. And, and let's just talk about, because now this is the system that basically everyone in the world uses. Everyone in the world uses this, yes. But before this, months, so in the, in the fight for France, Nothing. It, it's a matter of, take your lads, go on a patrol, no, see, you go see on if patrols. you see any Germans yeah. coming over. That's right, so you'd go off in your dawn patrol, as you did in the First World War, and if you saw some enemy aircraft, you'd uh, call for help. Uh, I mean, this, the alternative to this was standing patrols, and that would have used up hours and hours and hours of flight time and would have required many more than 52 squadrons. 
they still did a lot of standing patrols actually. If you look at the sortie raids, Fire Command are flying a, a lot of them, especially over the channel uh, where the warning times were short, which is why Dowding did not want to fight the Luftwaffe over the channel. He wanted them to attack Britain because if they did, he knew he could break them, as he put it. Uh, but they did that as backup. You know, it's very robust, right? So you lose a few radar stations, the others take over. Lose one ops room, the others take over. Um, if you, you, you back it up with the Observer Corps, you don't place your faith in this new technology, you back it up. You back up what you know from this system with standing patrols as well. They used to send single spotter aircraft over. If they had big raids coming in from Calais, they'd send someone in the Spitfire up at 25,000 feet just to check where they all were and see where the top cover was hanging out. And check that the radar information and was correct. And it was correct, yeah. So, so you get a big raid coming from Calais. Here we are. They come over to Dover. They're being tracked all the way across. Yep. And, squ and, and pilots can be having a nice old snooze till the last minute. Pretty much. And they're yeah. told when and where to engage Yeah, they'd be, they had various states of alert. Your nice old snooze is you're released. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you have readiness. Uh, and then you're scrambled, you know, they're different, different but, but levels. You mean, so you're you not know, exhausted flying around no. in circles waiting for the enemy. No, yeah. it saves fuel and it, above all, it saves pilots time because it was absolutely draining on uh, the individuals concerned. Good job, Lady Young. So is this the place to talk about the myth of the Battle of Britain? Because I was always brought up to say the Luftwaffe was much bigger than the RAF. Mm -hmm. They came across in these massive formations. Yes. It was nip and tuck, especially that last yeah. week of August right. before the Germans changed strategy yes. and attacked London. It was close, they might have won. Mm. I don't think the Luftwaffe ever came close. I think the key word, if you give it, want me to say what, in one word, why did we win? The answer is strategy. And of course you don't see strategy. Strategy is invisible. It's all this thinking that's going on behind it. So, yes, the Luftwaffe as a whole was bigger than Fighter Command, of course, because most of them were bombers, which were mainly targets. If you look at the fighter-fighter ratio, the Germans start off with a small advantage, but they lose strength because they're unable to replace them as fast as we are, and we actually gain strength. We actually new squadrons uh, come into Fighter Command. You know, the Poles were not there in the beginning. The Canadians were not there at the beginning. He actually gets reinforcements as well as replacements. So Fighter Command's strength remains steady. We are outproducing them in aircraft by a factor of two to one. And this is a battle of attrition. What matters is your ability to continue. We have one week when we started losing more pilots than we were replacing. But both Dowding and Park were on to why. It was because raw squadrons were being sent from the north as replacements. I don't mean raw pilots. Everybody dealt with raw pilots, but they can learn from the experienced ones on the squadron. This is where no one on the squadron has been in battle before and no one knows what to do. Those nine squadrons suffer 40% of Fighter Command's casualties and make 25% of the claims, most of which are probably erroneous. So they're suffering a lot more damage than they're meeting out. And Dowding changed that system on September the 7th. He saw what was happening. The other thing that changed was that the Germans had realised they, they really wanted fighter battles, so they increased the ratio of fighters to bombers, from like sort of three to under five to one. Um, but they couldn't sustain it because they were running out of fighters. And so they're having smaller and smaller forces acting as escorts around any given set of bombers, and so that had to change. Um, and if they do that, they're just sending over more targets. And I don't think the target itself changed a thing on the air fighting. Whether they're attacking Biggin Hill or Docklands is neither here nor there where the bombs drop, because A, they're very close. I mean, you can stand on the end of Biggin Hill runway, I have done, and see Canary Walk clear as day when the, when the weather's okay. It's only going to be significant if you're doing serious damage to airfields that you're taking them out. Now living under an airfield that's being attacked and the most intensively attacked was Biggin Hill is a very unpleasant experience. But the only really serious target there is the ops room. 
You can blow up hangars, you can crater the runways, you don't need the hangars, you can disperse the aircraft around the side, you, you berth people off-site, of course, in the village. And to show you how important the damage was, one day in the uh, beginning of September, Group Captain Grice, uh, who was a station commander at Brigham Hill, decided he had enough. And he got up in his magister and took a German reconnaissance bomber's eye view of his station and saw that there was one hangar left. And at six o'clock in that evening, there was a big bang and the last standing hangar on Biggin Hill went up in smoke. And in the morning, another Dornier came along, took some photographs, went back and uh, the Luftwaffe decided that Biggin Hill was finished, wrote it off and never attacked it again. Uh, Group Captain Grice was put on a charge for willful damage to the King's property. <laughs> But he was tried by an RAF court martial who found him not guilty and they all went off to the White Hart, embraced it and got dissed. <laughs> so, because the Germans had such a naive view of what damage they were doing, and they didn't even know what an operations room was, that they didn't realise that all this sound of fury was really doing nothing. When Park wrote about this incident, he says, I wish to impress upon you, he's writing to the Air Ministry, that uh, there was a period in time when the attacks on our infrastructure were threatening to create a serious loss in efficiency. Very serious indeed. Now you imagine you're the German commander, you've been giving a maximum effort for four weeks and the enemy is worried that they may start losing efficiency. And you think you've brought him to his knees and he's about to surrender. I don't call that a narrow margin. So it's fascinating because the clue should be in the title. We're hearing fighter command headquarters, mm. but they're not doing that much commanding. No, they're not. They're actually not doing any commanding at all. <laughs> they're doing information processing. The commanding is being done here at group. Command is giving direction, telling people what to do. The overall strategy, defeat every serious raid in order to deny air superiority, has already been fixed. It's in everybody's head. That comes from Dowding. Then he stops. He doesn't interfere. And then if you consider the number of things that have to be done, I mean, when you're controlling squadrons, you've got to know where your guys are. So they had another system called Pipsqueak, that's sending information back here that has to be processed on another frequency. And then they got the IFF system, the identification friend and foe system working for, for them as well. You imagine trying to get all that at a national level in this room? Forget it. Part of the genius of this system is that it realizes what work needs to be done by whom. Everybody knows exactly what their role is. They don't interfere with each other. They trust each other, but everybody is working on a common shared understanding of what is going on. And that, I have to say, is a key to operational effectiveness in any business organization today, just as much as it was for them. And there's a lot of them could learn a lot of lessons from this. Stephen, what I find so inspiring about the Dowding system is it's such a clever, wonky, technocratic response but at the sharp end of it there are unbelievably brave young men yeah. sweating uh, the, and fighting and dying the and fighter boys yes absolutely um and i was privileged to get to know some of them they, they certainly were remarkable chaps but one of the things that struck me really powerfully was their modesty uh in that i mean it was against the ethos of fighter command to shoot a line as it were to show off it's sort of the opposite of profiling yourself on facebook today <laughs> And they all played it down because they understood that they were part of a bigger whole. Yeah. And you, constantly, you know, how did you manage to do it? Oh, well, I was, I was just doing my job. I mean, one, one of the guys I got to know first was this, this fellow here. That's a portrait of him from, from the time. Uh, who was Bob Doe, who first popped up on a Channel 4 series in 1990. And he lived locally. I got in touch and we got to know each other rather well. 
He was an unknown ace, he got 17 kills. And he was a gardener's son from Rygate, which is not far from where I live. And um, he, he tells his story of being the worst pilot in the squadron. He said, I was the worst pilot in the squadron. I didn't like being upside down, he said. But, you know, the 13th of August came and uh, there he was in 10 group. The airfield had been bombed and then they were scrambled. And I said, so what persuaded you to take off? He said, well, I knew I was going to die, he said, but um, I was more afraid of being thought a coward. So he took off and stuck to his leader and he came back having shot down two every one one O's. And then he had a bit of a think about what he was doing and changed his tactics. He used to fly in slippers or socks, so he had a better feel for a Spitfire. And he was a dead shot, which was very rare. The reason was, being a gardener's son, his, his dad used to take him out when he was gardening when he was young, and he gave him a little air rifle, and he used to shoot the heads off tulips. And he got his eye in that way. And once you control Spitfire, instinctively, you could do the same thing. Wonderful fellow. He, he's one of the many who told me that he hates being thought of as a hero, so I was just doing my job. But, he, but, he's sort of, but he's right, because of the Downing system, he's right that he was obviously incredibly brave, tenacious, accurate, yeah. but he was put in the right equipment, in the, in the right, right place, place the right time, by yeah. a bigger system. And the other thing that always strikes me about these Battle of Britain pilots and aces, they were often promoted, they were promoted within, rather than keep them on the front line shooting down yes. enemy aircraft, the, right. like people like Sailor Milan, I guess, they were promoted, they, 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 were, promoted. They, were, they, were, they were, the yes. system. And, and I think, well, actually, Sailor, there's a story when he, he led 74, I mean, he was one of the finest pilots we had. Very hard disciplinarian, but also very generous. I mean, he would deliberately take up young pilots as his wingmen, but in contrast to Gallant, he'd allow them to get the kill. He'd protect them to give them confidence and build them up. And these guys didn't care that much, except for a few of them, a few of them did. Most of them didn't care that much about what their individual scores were, whereas that's all that seemed to matter to some of the uh, German pilots, some of the aces. And of course, it was also in many ways a um, meritocracy. I mean, that, that's a famous figure up there in, uh, in colour. That's Ginger Lacey. Now, Ginger uh, was son of, I think, a butcher uh, from Yorkshire, and he was a sergeant pilot. And he flew with 501 squadron, but he was the best pilot on the squadron. And once they were in the air, they followed him. <laughs> on the ground, they had a separate mess for the sergeants. They weren't supposed to mix with the officers. Officers and gentlemen, you see, don't mix with butcher sons from Yorkshire. But up in the air, it was meritocratic. And um, of course, he was promoted afterwards. So and gradually, these class distinctions wore away. But they're, they're very strong, of course, in, in, initially. And you and I have been spending all our time here in this stately home, thinking about this wonderful system and radar and tech. But we, we, we shouldn't forget that up, these guys on the front line at the sharp end, it was war. Oh yes, uh, there was nothing very romantic about it. I mean, they, you talk about knights of the air and so on and jousts, but these sort of one-on-one -on -one combats were extremely rare. A few of them took place, but very rare. Largely, uh, success was about creeping up on someone from behind and stabbing him in the back and running away before any of his friends could get you. I'm not sure how heroic that is. But that's basically what success was about. And it was, I mean, they were, they were knackered. Ah. They were going up five times a day. And... Well, to go back to Bob, so he went into action on August the 15th and was continuously in action for three weeks up to September the 7th when his squadron leader was uh, shot down. They withdrew his squadron 234 to Cornwall to St. Evil. And um, 
I said, he, he'd been able to tell me, if, if, if I named a day, I'd say, say, what were you doing on the afternoon of 18th of August? Oh, right, that was the raid on Portland, and I was, he tell me minute by minute what he was doing. I said, so, okay, so it's September the 8th, you're in Cornwall, what do you do? do? He said, I have no idea. I said, well, I can't remember anything about the next two weeks. Really? Why? He said, because I was asleep most of the time. He just, he lived on adrenaline and went clunk. And you, you can see it in their eyes sometimes. You, you get these 20-year-olds with great black rims around their eyes. That's not tiredness, that's exhaustion. That's quite different. They, they would... I mean, you, you think they'd sort of go to bed straight away, actually used to party all night, so they'd get two or three hours sleep a night. They'd be down to the White Hart if they were in Biggin Hill, because they're so tensed up. You, after you've been in five air fights, there's no way you're going to relax and have a nice snooze. Uh, you're either going to collapse or you're going to keep going, and they kept going until they collapsed, and then they'd be up before dawn and do it again. And you keep going for so long, and then bonk. And he describes that point where he didn't have to anymore, so he went, bonk. Almost in a coma. I think he, would, he, he was very close to being in a coma for two weeks. And, and then he went back. <laughs> <laughs> and the, some of the descriptions of the burns near you know, the hurricane, particularly, ah, wasn't yes, it, that used to... Yes. Uh, yeah, the problem there was the, um, the two very big wing tanks. You see, the wings of a Spitfire were too narrow to put petrol in it, so you just set a tank in front of the... Um, so, so it was behind the engine and behind the armour plating in the back. So, of course, it did catch fire, but it was less vulnerable target. If you've got you know, the hurricane shaped, you've got these two huge wing tanks that are just down there, either side of the cockpit. There's no, there's no panel between them and the cockpit, and that's the centre of the target if you're firing at a hurricane. So you get one incendiary bullet in there and whoosh! And the flames appear to come from in front, but in fact they're coming from up here, and so you've got a few seconds to get out. And then the question then is um, how much of your skin is left, or whether and how much of you is left. And they were all, most of them were whipped off to the Victoria Hospital in East Grinstead, but they came under the care of Archibald Backendoe, who developed new grafting techniques uh, and reconstructed them effectively, and that was pioneering uh, medical work at the time, and created the guinea pig club. In fact, there's a picture of one pilot who's a Czech, you can see he's been through McIndoe's treatment as a member of the Guinea Pig Club, and that's how they would end up looking. And actually, we should, I, th I always like to spare a thought for the German pilots, because the Brits had it hard, but the Germans running out of fuel over the channel, ditching... Yep. Uh, yes, I mean, it was worse for them, because, uh, I mean, they didn't have so many green pilots on the squadron, because they just didn't have enough replacements coming in. So the old hands used to have to keep on going. Um, as Ulrich describes, the more senior commanders tended to have a mysterious case of appendicitis at some stage and uh, be forced to leave their unit to go to hospital back in Germany. Uh, there was an old joke uh, of, amongst German pilots that when you met a Battle of Britain veteran, you said, oh, where's your appendectomy scar? Here's mine. And guys like him you know, he was sort of middle-ranking officer, well, lowest middle-ranking officer, were getting seriously pissed off because they felt let down by the system, the whole thing seemed pointless, and a lot of their senior officers seemed to be putting their own interests first. So there was a steady build-up of sort of crisis in morale in the Luftwaffe that was building up throughout August and reached its peak in, in September because they all realised it was pointless. I mean, people will carry on. People will sacrifice an awful lot 
and endure great suffering and danger if they think they're getting somewhere. But if they think it's all pointless, that's when morale starts to drop. And it was becoming apparent to most of them that it was pointless. Last thought, surrounded here by the pictures of these, some of the more famous of the few. What did, this, what did this victory mean? What did the Battle of Britain mean? Well, the Battle of Britain is often said victory uh, prevented invasion. It certainly put the seal on invasion because it was a necessary but not sufficient condition of the invasion taking place. I think the German Navy breathed a sigh of relief when it was postponed. But I think the most important thing was that it strengthened Churchill's position in Parliament. After the Battle of Britain, Churchill's position was pretty much untouchable. There were a couple of boats of no confidence later in the war because the war continued to go from bad to worse. But they were very easily defeated. And that meant that we were going to continue fighting. It also was the first time that Hitler had actually suffered a reverse. They pretended they hadn't. But it was pretty clear to everyone that they'd finally met their match. And it had an important effect in the United States. We exploited its propaganda value in the US in particular for all it was worth because one of the main planks of Churchill's grand strategy was to get the US involved. He knew once the US skented on our side, it was only a matter of time, but they weren't going to come in for another year. So he used all this. It got an awful lot of sympathy, especially the Blitz got a lot of sympathy. Ed Mumro's reports and so on went all around the US. And if I were asked to pinpoint the time when Germany lost the war, I would surprise everybody by saying it was July 1940 because that's when they decided to attack Russia without having cleared their backs by defeating or coming to terms with Britain. That means they would have been in a two-front war and every general in Germany knew that a two-front war was a war that Germany was going to lose. And they walked into it. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks.